Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. <clears throat> Sorry. It's a joy to be here. I was worried during the week. I would feel better one day and then terrible the next and then better and then terrible. But uh, grateful to the Lord that uh, I'm here today and uh, trusting that my, my voice will last through this morning and this evening. We're going to be looking at First Chronicles chapter 14. So if you can turn there uh, in your Bibles, First Chronicles chapter 14. And one of the roles of uh, preaching is to humble the proud. To humble the proud. So I just want to say a few words. Kaiser Chiefs, Manchester United. <laughs> I can say that because I've supported Liverpool, so I've suffered a lot of pain. First Chronicles 14, I'm going to read the, the passage, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll look at it. So, uh, from verse 1. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David fathered more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpelet, Nogla, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Belida, and Elephelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went out against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up, and I will give them into your hand. And he went up to Baal-perezim, and David struck them down there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand, like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perezim. And they left their gods there, and David gave command, and they were burned. And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. And when David again inquired of God, God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Go round and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Giza. 
And the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. This is the reading of God's word. So it's going to be a little bit of a a different sermon uh, this morning because there's going to be uh, quite a few explanations uh, for certain things. Uh, So maybe a bit of a lecture as well. So I'd encourage you to to arm yourself with that and to uh, put on your thinking caps. Uh, We're going to be a little bit technical, but uh, I think it's really important that we do this. Well, let's start in verse 1. We we read there the account of this king of Tyre. Now, Tyre is a city, it's got a different name now, but it's a port city in modern-day Lebanon, uh, which is part of the Phoenician Empire. Tyre and Sidon are often terms that you will hear in uh, or read in the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon. The Phoenician Empire was a seafaring empire. And so the king of Tyre, Hiram, Uh, sends cedars and masons and carpenters and builds a house for David. And so David realizes that the Lord is blessing him and and establishing him and uh, that the kingdom has been highly exalted. In the book of Chronicles, the chronicler will often mention with respect to good kings that they had good relationships with many of the neighboring kings. Not all of them. Uh, But it was a sign of a good king that he was able to build good relationships with other nations, even even though those nations were not uh, part of Israel or believers in the God of Israel. So the first application we can come to for ourselves today is, uh, what do people think of Christians today? Um, I think most people, if you were to interview them, have a very negative view of Christians today or of evangelicalism today. Many, and and rightfully so, I would argue, many Christians are very volatile on social media. They're very angry and bitter. They're always complaining and moaning. Uh, They're not uh, gracious or kind. Uh, And so Christians are viewed in a very negative way. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, when Paul writes about those who seek to be pastors, he says that they must be well thought of by outsiders, meaning people in the world. And so the first application, the first challenge to to all of us is, uh, what do unbelievers think of you? Now, uh, remember I said many of the nations, not all of the nations, we're going to read about the Philistines, certainly you will be hated, that is guaranteed in Scripture. So it's it's not that everyone will like you. But if everyone hates you, that's also a problem. Uh, How do you treat your neighbors? How do you treat those around you? How do you treat people, unbelievers, in the workplace? How do you treat unbelievers who are your peers, your colleagues at work or fellow students or at school? Uh, What do they think of you? There's uh, one brother here, I won't mention his name, but over the years that I've known him, any time I meet people from his work environment, and, and I've, I've met quite a few over the years, they, even if they're unbelievers, they speak so highly of him, of his work ethic, of his integrity. That's the idea here as well. God's people should be winsome. We should be those who are building good relationships with unbelievers, with our neighbors, those that live around us, caring for them, looking out for them, not fighting with them uh, unnecessarily, dealing with things 
the book of Proverbs has quite a lot to say about how we should deal with our, our neighbors. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. If you're always putting others down, if you're with that person in the work environment who is slandering others, of course, people are not going to like you. And then you can't say, well, it's because I'm a Christian. It's because you are slandering them. Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret. Don't go around gossiping. If you have an issue with someone, deal directly with them. This is the one that I always use with my children. Proverbs 26, 18, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Uh, my children do that. I say, why, do you, why did you say that? Why were you so nasty to your sibling? No, I was just joking. Uh, but how do you treat other people? Uh, how, how, how do you interact with them? How do you speak about them? How do you speak to them? And so David has this good relationship with Hiram. And Hiram blesses him and does good to him. And you will find that as well. Uh, as you, as you walk, walk a road with unbelievers, as you... Uh, bear their burdens as you care for them. Uh, the Bible study that I do at, at RMB and Santon, then I, from time to time I'll try and give them practical applications in the workplace. Maybe they have a, a difficult person in their team or a, a difficult work colleague, a difficult relationship with them. And so it's easy just to cut that person off. And I say, well, why don't you try and find out? Maybe there's something going on in their life. Maybe they're experiencing terrible loss or a difficult marriage or something like that. Draw alongside them. Buy them a coffee. Build a relationship with them. And so David here has a good relationship with Hiram and is blessed. And he acknowledges that it comes from the Lord. And then it says this, uh, so that David's kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And so David realizes that the blessings that he receives as, this, as king are for the good of the nation, are for the good of the people of Israel. They were not something just for him. They were not to end on him the blessings. I've used this analogy before, uh, but it's such a powerful one as you look at the map of Israel and the Jordan River flowing from uh, north to south uh, along the eastern side of Israel. It flows through the, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and it's a fertile body of water. Even at the time of Jesus, lots of fishing going on. Uh, the Jordan River flows in and then flows out. But the Jordan River ends at the Dead Sea. There is no life there. There are no fish there. Because the river simply flows in and doesn't flow out. The river ends at the Dead Sea. And so it is. If you take all the blessings that God gives you and they end at you, you will become like the Dead Sea. But if you take the blessings and you realize God has blessed me for the good of His people, for the good of the church community, if God has blessed you with wealth, it's not to end on you, it's for the good of others. If God has blessed you with a home to show hospitality, that's what it's there for. It's not so that you can be on the cover of home and decor or whatever. <laughs> God has blessed you with certain gifts and abilities, counseling, administration, so many different areas where one is able to serve. That's why God has given you those things too, for the good of God's people. 
And David realizes this. And so what the chronicler is doing here in this section, if you were here last week, or if you know, uh, if you're familiar with with, uh, Chronicles, last week we saw that David made a terrible mistake, didn't he? he? He tried to move the Ark of the Covenant in an ungodly way. And God judged him. And so the chronicler realizes that the the readers, the original audience, might be upset and say, well, how can we trust the Davidic line? Because look, David blows it as well. And so in this chapter, he wants to re-emphasize, no, David has been chosen by God. Even neighboring kings bless him. God has established David's kingdom. And then we come to this uh, potentially difficult passage. Verse 3. And David took more wives in Jerusalem. And David fathered more sons and daughters. And then these are the names of some of the children that are born to him. And so maybe some of you are here because you saw polygamy uh, in the the write-up. And so you're like, oh, I want to hear about that. Uh, Let me tell you first of all what the chronicler is doing. First of all, he's he's emphasizing God's blessing on David. Okay, Uh, That God has blessed him with many wives and many children. And so this is a symbol of fruitfulness. Remember in the ancient Near Eastern world, and in many traditional cultures and rural rural areas, uh, having many children is a sign of blessing. And so it was in, in in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. It was a sign of tremendous blessing to have. The more children, the more you were blessed. And that's what the chronicler is getting across here. But we come to this thorny issue. How come he's got many wives? Is that allowed? What's going on here? Uh, and so this is sort of the lecture part of the lecture part. Uh, uh, with my, my seminary students, probably this is maybe the most or one, certainly one of the most asked questions by my students. What about polygamy? Okay. Is it okay? Is polygamy okay? Uh, many Christians if you ask them, will immediately say, polygamy has always been wrong, it's always been a sin, it is ungodly. In fact, the first missionaries uh, into Africa, when, they, when someone was converted and they had many wives, they would say, what you need to do is keep the first one and get rid of the rest. Okay, and that was their response. And, uh, because they see it correctly in the New Covenant, Uh, And the original plan was always one man, one woman. So how come this period of polygamy, and has it always been sinful? I don't believe so, because there is a difficult passage. You remember in 2 Samuel when David sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, He took Uriah's wife uh, for himself, a terrible story. And then he has Uriah murdered to get him out the way. Then Nathan the prophet in the next chapter, in, in chapter 7, uh, sorry, chapter 12, uh, confronts him. And uh, Nathan says this to David. He says, this is what the God of Israel says to you. I anointed you king over Israel. So these are the words of God to David. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. And so the Lord says, through Nathan to David, I would have given you more wives if you had wanted more wives. You didn't have to go and commit adultery and and murder. 
Now, of course, if polygamy was always one of the Ten Commandments or something, God would never have condoned it. God would never have said, I would have given you more wives. God would never say, it's okay, you can kill more people. It's okay, you can lie more. It's okay, you can steal more. Polygamy, it seems, was allowed by God in the Old Covenant because of the weakness of, of men and because it was not yet the, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit given in fullness. The Holy Spirit was active and working, of course, uh, but Pentecost had not yet occurred. God's plan had always been one man, one woman for life. That is what we see in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve. But God allowed it, allowed polygamy for a season. If you're here and you're a member of Heritage as a man and you say, well, I actually, oh, I think I would like to take another wife, you will be excommunicated. (laughs) Because we know better and you know better now, God has clearly revealed it. But if someone came to Heritage, and this, is, this could happen and has happened actually, uh, if a man came who had more than one wife to Heritage and was saved, we would not say to him, keep your first wife and get rid of the rest. In fact, in, 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 uh, you know, with, with what, what the missionaries did at times, was a terrible thing because many of those ladies then were out on the street, weren't they? In agrarian cultures, in cultures like this, how were they supposed to, to look after themselves? How were they, they didn't have land or possessions or property. Uh, the biblical teaching would be, no more wives, be the best husband you can be, and train your children that this is not the right way. So that's an excursus on polygamy. Uh, it was allowed by God for a season But it is not first prize. And in fact, when you read in Genesis, over and over again, where we do see polygamy taking place, it creates a lot of problems. Uh, But someone who is not a believer, and I would argue if someone, uh, so even our former president, is not sinning by having many wives, unless he's claiming to be a Christian as well, or he's been baptized, then he is sinning. But if someone uh, has many wives, and that's part of the culture, They are not sinning. They are sinning though if they become a Christian and they continue that practice. Uh, If you have questions, write an email. (laughs) Read through it again. Read through it again. If you're still happy, you can send it to me, okay? Okay, so that's an excuse on polygamy. What the chronicler is simply trying to do is show God's blessing upon David. God had blessed David with many children. Uh, For us today, certainly children are a blessing. uh, But the the language of Scripture is fruit. And it's the same here. He has a fruit of of David's loins. Uh, But the fruit that God is most concerned about now is the fruit of the Spirit. The impact that you are having on other people's lives and how you are growing in holiness. A sign of God's favor upon you is that you are growing in holiness and impacting people's lives for the good. That's the fruit we want to see. Of course we want children. Uh, We want to see children raised in godly homes, but there is no shame for those who are not able to have children. There is no shame for those who uh, remain single, not at all. Uh, That is ungodly. 
Uh, we want to be those though, who do know God's favour upon our lives. And then we come to two stories about David fighting the Philistines. Uh, so two accounts, and I'm sure you noticed they're very similar. Verses 8 to 12 is the first one. And then 13 to 16 is the second one. And so the Philistines now attack David. And um, they come to the, the valley of Rephaim on both occasions. And in both occasions, David seeks the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. Um, and in both occasions, God gives David victory, but in, in different ways. Uh, before we unpack that, uh, uh, as an eldership, we thought it would be helpful and wise to give a guideline, a hermeneutical lesson. Okay, so hermeneutics might be like, what, what does that mean, hermeneutics? Uh, hermeneutics just simply means the principles of interpretation. How does one interpret the scriptures? One applies hermeneutics, to, in fact, to everything that one reads. Uh, you have to interpret everything you read, but how do you interpret the scriptures? And especially, how do you interpret the Old Testament? Because when we come to the New Testament, and we read the way the apostles interpret the Old Testament, it doesn't fit with our Western hermeneutic. It doesn't fit with a modernist hermeneutic. We cannot see, if we use that, that principle of interpretation, how they got what they got. For example, you will see Matthew saying, quoting Hosea. When the Lord Jesus goes down into Egypt, remember as a baby, he flees down into Egypt, and then uh, uh, they come back out of Egypt after Herod has died, and Matthew says, this is, was to fulfill what the prophet said, out of Egypt I have called my son. He's quoting directly from the prophet Hosea. When you go and read Hosea, it's not a prophecy at all. Hosea is talking about the exodus that occurred hundreds of years earlier, where God called Israel his son. And remember, he delivered Israel out of the nation of Egypt. They were slaves and God delivered them. Hosea is talking about that event. He's, he's in fact quoting from what happened in that event. And yet the apostles, when they read that story, see that it's about Jesus. That it's the true, the true Israel is Jesus Christ. And so what we want to have is the hermeneutic of the apostles. The principles of interpretation of the apostles. Uh, and so many of you uh, have come from different backgrounds. All of us have been influenced by a very modernistic hermeneutic. Uh, many maybe have been influenced by dispensational hermeneutics uh, that never see Christ in the Old Testament unless it's like, you know, smacks you in the face. Okay. <laughs> uh, Maybe some of you have, have come out of really bad churches, charismatic churches, where they allegorize Scripture. Okay, so that's, that's, not, that's wrong. Allegorizing of Scripture is wrong. So let me explain to you what allegorizing of Scripture means. And let me just say this. The word allegory, or allegory uh, I'm giving you the modern understanding of allegory. Okay, it's not always been like this. In fact, when Paul uses the word allegory in, in Galatians, he means typology. Okay? He means that this is really what the scriptures are talking about. 
But allegory, the way we understand it, is if there's a story and there are things in that story, whether it's people or objects or um, places, that you give a random meaning to. Okay, let me repeat that. It's where you take a story and there are things mentioned in the story and you give a random meaning to that the rest of the Bible does not ever uh, link that thing to. So let me give you some examples. Maybe that will help. Uh, Matthew 28 verse 2 says, An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. Maybe you've heard preachers say, you need to roll away the stones in your life. <laughs> you heard that? That stone of fear. That stone of doubt. That stone of debt. You need to move it. Roll it out of your life. Okay? And of course it preaches well and people get excited. And, uh, but it's rubbish. Okay? It's got nothing to do with the text. That is allegorizing. Here's another one. Acts uh, 27, verse 29, when Paul is on a, on, a, on a boat and there's a big storm and uh, they throw overboard four anchors. And people will say, well, those four anchors represent uh, the anchor of faith or the anchor of hope or the anchor of this. This is what you need to use. Again, there is nowhere in Scripture where anchors are linked to hope or faith or anything like that. To give you an example from uh, the past few weeks, we've done a lot of warfare passages, um, and and I'll expand on this just now. But when we come to the New Testament, we we find the language of warfare clearly. It is all over the place. We have the armor in Ephesians six. We have Second Corinthians ten, which we'll look at. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we are in a battle. Paul says, I have fought the fight. He has wrestled. But what is he talking about? So we see the language being applied. So the language of warfare taken from the Old Testament is now applied in a different way. He does the same thing with sacrifices. The whole sacrificial system. You go and read all the sacrifices in Leviticus. Different sacrifices. Why is it that we don't kill animals anymore. Even if it's not for sin. There were sacrifices just for to, to show that you love the Lord. Why don't we do that anymore? Why don't we still kill animals? Well, when we come to the New Testament, the language of sacrifice is still used. Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul probably has in mind the whole burnt offering image. Uh, where they would give a whole animal and it would be burnt up totally as a symbolic way of saying, Lord, I want to live for you only. I'm giving everything for you. Paul is saying now, we must live like that. Give your whole self to the Lord. So when you read about sacrifices in the Old Covenant, it's not just interesting history. It's not just, oh, pretty gruesome, weird, whatever. No, it's telling us something about how we are supposed to live as Christians. Hebrews 13 says, Through Him they let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. When we were singing earlier, that was a sacrifice of praise that you were giving to God. 
We don't sacrifice animals anymore, but we give the fruit of our lips. Philippians 4.18, Paul is, is, is telling the Philippians that he received money, he received financial support from them. And he says this, that their gift was a fragrant offering. That's the language of how God saw the sacrifices. They were a fragrant offering. He says a sacrifice acceptable. When you give to the Lord's work, when you give cheerfully to the church here, that is a pleasing aroma to God. That is a sacrifice. And so that's the principle that we use when we come to the Old Testament. They're not just interesting stories about courage or something like that. In fact, if you say, well, the story is about courage, well, how does that apply to me? Courage for what? Courage to go to war? Courage to kill Philistines? Courage to fight someone who breaks into my home? No. What is the courage that we're called to? To stand for Christ. And so we need to follow it all the way through. And so when it comes to those stories, allegorizing would be something like this. Uh, If I said, David defeats the Philistines and goes to war against the Philistines, uh, and that's now an argument that I use for... Uh, political activism. Or, guys, we need, you see, this story is telling us we need to resist vaccines. That's allegorizing. It's got nothing to do with it. If I said this story is telling us about fighting sin, well, I find that in the New Testament. I find the warfare language used when it comes to killing sin. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Murder it. Fight it. If I said, now this applies to refuting ungodly worldviews, 2 Corinthians 10 tells me that. That's the warfare I'm in, involved in. So I hope you see the difference between allegorizing, which is just random, and maybe many of you have come from that background, and that is wrong and unhelpful. And of course, uh, when, when the, the preacher is, is, is linking it to things that you're thinking, my goodness, how did that stone become... Debt. You know, I need to roll away the the stone of debt. (laughs) Wow, he's amazing. Where does he get this stuff from? Uh, And of course, he's he's six feet above contradiction, isn't he? Because it's just, where did he get that from? But when you understand the hermeneutics of Scripture and the way the apostles interpret the Old Testament, then... The Old Testament comes alive. Those stories are so powerful. I could tell you about fighting sin, but when you have a story of of guys going to battle, it, it adds another dimension. This is what we're involved in. It's a fight. Gird up your loins. Get ready every day. It's going to come. Temptations are going to come. Ungodly thinking is going to come. How am I going to respond? I'm going to use God's word, the sword of the Spirit. I'm going to fight this, no matter what, no matter how small it might seem. And so it's not allegorizing, it is the hermeneutic of the apostles. Now let me say, it becomes quite complex. We live in, as I said, the influence of modernism. Even with postmodernism, most of us still have a scientific mind, an analytical mind. Hermeneutics is more art than science. If you want a bunch of laws, I don't have a bunch of laws for you. 
For example, I've said to you, David is a type of Christ. That's clearly taught in the Bible. The Gospels go to great lengths to show that Jesus is a descendant of David. He is David's greatest son. But is David always a type of Jesus? Is David a type of Jesus when he's sinning with Bathsheba? No, not at all. So it's not one for one. It's not every time you see David, it's Jesus. You have to read carefully the context, what's going on. Now don't be discouraged if you don't get it all at once. Uh, it's why, why pastors go to seminary and train for years and years and years. And that God has given teachers and pastor teachers to the church. If we could all interpret the Bible ourselves without anyone's help, then we, wouldn't, we would be wasting our time here. We could all just sit and read our Bibles at home. But God has called us to gather. In fact, you don't find the New Testament saying, make sure you read your Bible at home. They had big scrolls. They were super expensive. Nobody had the Bible at home. They're called to gather as God's people and come under the faithful preaching of God's Word. I'm not stopping you from reading the Bible at home. You must read it. Praise God that we have the Bibles at home. And check everything that's said. But I want to encourage you. If you don't get it, it's fine. That's why we come every Lord's Day. That's why we have Bible Hour. That's why we, we communicate and talk to learn and grow in these these areas. So what you want to look out for is, is this allegorizing? If I took a sword or a spear and then I said, this spear is referring to my latest book that's coming out. Okay? Of course, that's nonsense. Okay? Uh, you, you can't do it. That's allegorizing. But if you can see, you know, there's a connection all the way through. Through the scriptures. I see this theme, and I see now how the apostles take that, that theme. We're going to come later on in Chronicles to the building the temple. And so many pastors will say, you know, they'll go to passages like this and other passages, and they'll say, guys, you've got to give to the building fund. Okay? See, it says here they gave money to the temple, you've got to give to the building fund. It's nonsense. The New Testament does not talk about the, the structure. It tells us the true temple is Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that temple. So when we come to the temple, building the temple, I'm going to talk about building the church up, using your gifts. So that's a warning. Okay, That's a bonus. Uh, you can go and do your own work. Please start to see the connection. Yeah, am I talking nonsense? Or does the New Testament tell me Jesus is the temple? Does the New Testament tell me we are the temple of God and Jesus Christ is the head? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, you can go and, you can go and read uh, before we get to those passages. So I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, how do we get uh, to, to certain places? And again, as I said, we live in a scientific analytical world. Uh, one person said to me, how can you tell me to use my sanctified imagination when I don't even have an imagination? Okay. Uh, that's why, why the stories are so powerful. Strengthen your imagination. Read the Gospels. You'll notice Jesus only preached with stories. Paul is very different to Jesus. Most, by far the majority of the Bible is story. It's a narrative. It's there. And if you miss out on the principles of hermeneutics, you miss out 
on the beauty and richness of all of these incredible stories. So now let's go back to our text. Verse 8. Uh, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all, all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Uh, so we've just learned that the Lord had established David. He had been blessed by Hiram, king of Tyre. Uh, things are going well. He's got a, a, a nice big house, beautiful house. It's, it's a sign that God is with him and God is blessing him. He's having children. All of these things are going well. And you know in the Christian life that does not last long, isn't that right? <laughs> and that's exactly what happens here. Immediately the Philistines come. They hear that he's been made king and they come to attack him. So let me again encourage you and challenge you, apply this to your own life. Praise God if things are going well for you now. If you're fighting sin, if, if, if your relationships are going well, if... Yeah, it's, you're gaining victory, little victories here and there. It's, it's encouraging. Praise God for that. But the trials are going to come. Temptations are going to come. The enemy is going to come. He always wants to destroy us. One of the most interesting passages for me, 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I think I need to spray paint this on my bedroom wall. Because I'm always surprised. <laughs> I'm always like, ah, it was going so well. I had such a good week. And then it comes. But that's, it's going to happen. Don't be surprised. It's not something strange. The Philistines, remember, symbolically, the in it, uh, those that hate you, principalities and powers, Satan, the lust of your flesh will come again. They will come to rob what? The blessings of God in your, in your life. Assurance of salvation. Victory over sin. It's going to happen. And so they come, and you know what they did. They came, they raided the valley of Rephaim, the valley of Rephaim. Uh, starts in Jerusalem and goes down in a sort of southwest direction towards towards um, the Philistines' Gath, where the Philistines lived. And so it's pretty close to home. They raid that valley. And then David does this in both accounts. He seeks the Lord. I've told you before that this is a major theme for the chronicler. What sets the godly kings apart is that they seek the Lord. Remember we saw the death, the, the, the horrific account of Saul. And the scriptures say because he did not seek the Lord. But David seeks the Lord. And he asks the Lord, shall I go up? He inquires of the Lord and the Lord says, go and fight them. And David defeats them. God uses David. Notice what David says, verse 11. God has broken through my enemies by my hand. Like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal Perezim. Baal Perezim means God has burst through. God has broken out. You might be thinking, Baal, I thought Baal was a bad guy. How can this be referring to God? 
Baal is a generic term meaning father. Uh, and so God is also a father. So God is also Baal. But there was a false god called Baal as well. Okay? So uh, you don't need to get hung up on, on titles that are used. Uh, God is, uh, is quite happy to take titles that are abused by others. But this is referring to God. And it's saying God broke out in judgment against the Philistines. Last week, we saw that the place where Uzzah was killed, remember Uzzah put out his hand and he was, God broke out against him. And uh, that place was called Perez Uzzah, meaning break out against Uzzah. And so uh, these words, there's a play on words here, there's a link between the two accounts. Simply to show us this, God will break out against those who are enemies outside and those who are enemies inside. But here it is against the Philistines. And so this, this is where now we start to say, okay, what is going on here? How does this, how does this have application to us? How, how does, what is not just the original human author, what did the original human author mean? But remember, behind the human author is the Holy Spirit. The ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. The human author has limited understanding. He is bound by his cultural context. The Holy Spirit, of course not. He sees the big picture. He sees the whole thing. What is going beyond here? Well, what do they do? The Philistines leave their gods there. It's a powerful picture. Remember, under Saul, Saul was humiliated in front of the Philistine gods. But under David, the Philistine gods are humiliated. They leave their gods behind. It's quite humorous. Okay, you know. Oh my goodness, I forgot my God. Uh, I left him at home before we went away on holiday. We have to turn around. See, it's mocking. Leaving their pathetic gods behind. The prophets do this. They say, you know, with a piece of wood, a man creates a god, and with the other part, he makes a fire. The gods of this world. And so he's mocking. They leave their gods behind, and David says, burn them. Destroy them. Now what are we to do? Are we to go into places, grab people's statues and idols and break them down? Is that what we're called to do? Is that the application? I hope you all realize no. Okay. If you don't, speak to me. <laughs> speak to me quickly. Okay. Uh, that's not what we're called to do. Look at what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Our battle is not to go and kill people who differ with us, who serve other gods. That's not what we're called to. For the weapons, see, notice the language, he says we have weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It's not a physical sword anymore. It's not a physical spear anymore but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What we are to fight against in this, where Paul uses this warfare language, and I think it's best, most appropriate with this passage because it's destroying the false gods. 
is that we are to destroy the false worldviews and the false views of the ungodly and even those, those thoughts that come into our own minds as we're influenced by culture. That's what it's saying here. We destroy arguments and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. Every day you are attacked by wrong thinking. Especially those of you in university and school. Uh, we have the privilege of homeschooling. And, and, and that's a privilege. Uh, we're not cultic on it or something like you're sinning if you don't do homeschooling. Nothing like that at all. Um, but we hear some of the horror stories of what their children are being taught. Of having to celebrate Pride Day at school. Having to dress in a certain way on that day. These are government schools that are enforcing these kind of things. An onslaught of wrong thinking. These are false gods. They're not neutral. People say they're not religious. Everyone is religious. We were made to worship. Every human being is a worshiper. You come to university and what is you're mocked if you believe in creation. You're mocked if you believe in sin, if you believe in, in, in the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life. Every day, the Philistine false gods are coming against us. And here the Lord gives David victory. And there is victory for us. We have the answers. We have the scriptures. Now this is not the place to go into a, a full teaching on apologetics and how to defend the faith and how to... Uh, refute wrong world views. We use Bible Hour and other things for that and there are many great resources. But here's an application. Seek the Lord. Study His Word. Listen to good teaching. Read good books so that you can learn to think properly and destroy those idols. And in a winsome way, this is what Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy Always been prepared to make a defense. There's a language of warfare again. Make a defense. The Greek word is, a, is apologia, apologetic. So we get the word apologetic. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. This is an amazing thing with this warfare language. Can you imagine David saying to his troops, guys, we're going to go fight the Philistines, but do it with gentleness and respect. Okay? <laughs> I enjoy watching on YouTube those uh, you know, military footage from Afghanistan or places like that and those documentaries. And you'll see those guys before they go out on, tour, on, a, on a tour. They're not listening to the Bee Gees or um, I don't know who's a soft. Anyway, <laughs> they're listening to heavy metal, getting psyched, because they're going out to kill, to defend themselves. But now we're in a war, this is the funny thing. Go and fight this fight against people that hate God, that come with these false ideologies and false worldviews. And it's a real temptation to respond with anger and hatred and and try to just try and win the argument and belittle them and put them down. Put a Facebook post there and smash them, humiliate them. 
Do you think you'll win a single person through that? It's like, thank you so much for humiliating me. I'm now going to become a Christian. No. Give a reason for the hope that lies in. We defend, we speak the truth in love. How do we destroy these idols, these, these false gods that come? How do we burn them? Through truth. Truth spoken in love. And that's what it says here. With gentleness and respect. Remember that your worst enemy is still someone made in the image of God. They're still made in the image of God and they, they display something of God to all of us. And so as we fight, we need to fight in the right way as we fight these idols. The next story goes again, and we, don't, we won't go into it. Uh, God answers in a different way. And so again, I would just simply draw out from that, uh, how do we seek the Lord today? Uh, David had prophets. Uh, there was also stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And it was a, what we think was a black stone and a white stone. And so one would mean yes and one would mean no. The priests would have that. So there were different ways they could find out, what, God, what do you want me to do? We don't have those things. Uh, if you're a Christian, though, you belong to the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. He has given you His Word. He has given you the ability to pray. He has given you other godly people in a community. So seek the Lord. As we heard earlier, if you were here earlier for the session on courtship, about relationships, how do, you, how do you seek the Lord in that situation? Well, one of the things is to speak to older, wiser, godly people in the church. This is how we seek the Lord today. And each relationship is different. You might have two friends, both have the same worldview, but you can't treat each one the same way. There's a, there's a way to win each one of them. That's different. Seek the Lord for wisdom in each situation. Seek the counsel of others. If you don't know the answers, say, I don't know, but I'll find it. And so seek the Lord. Well, in closing, how does all of this, though, ultimately bring us to? To Christ. While the scriptures are written for our example, Paul, Paul tells us that in Corinthians, and the writer of Hebrews says all these people's lives, Hebrews 11, is written for our example. There is still something bigger than that, and that is that it must show us Christ. And so here David is behaving wisely, and he's showing us Christ. We see in the life of Jesus, his wisdom and his grace. You see that even, even people that the Jews hated came to Jesus. The Samaritans came to Jesus. The Gentiles came to Jesus. Those outside of the covenant community came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Go and read Luke's Gospel. It says that he grew in, in favor with men. He was put to death. People hated him, of course, but it wasn't everyone. He was gracious and kind. And so people were drawn to him. Those who were the outsiders were drawn to him. Did he seek the Father's will more than anyone else? It's always been so convicting to me. Like if Jesus prayed so much, 
You would say if there's one person who didn't need to pray in history, it would be the Lord Jesus. But yet over and over again, what do we read? We read about Him praying. Before making big decisions, He goes and He prays. He, seek, he sought the Father's will. Constantly, He inquired of the Father, sought the Father's will. And did God bless Him? Yes. I think in one of the write-ups it says how to live a victorious life. The sermon's about how to live a victorious life. But if you've grown up in a sort of charismatic prosperity church, a victorious life means rich, never sick, everything goes well, you're the head and not the tail, all of those things. A victorious life as a Christian means fulfilling fulfilling God's will for your life. And when you come to the scriptures, you see that God's will for your life might be suffering, persecution, rejection, death, humiliation. We've just gone through 2 Corinthians. But if you fulfill that faithfully, you, you have lived a victorious life. There has been fruit produced in your life. Through the Lord Jesus Christ's faithful obedience, as he sought the Father's will, he says, I never, I only do what I see the Father do. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's about to drink the cup of the wrath of God for our sins, he, he, he's so honest. Father, I don't want to do this. In my human nature, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to be forsaken. I don't want to be destroyed. I don't want to drink hell. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, I will submit myself to your will. I have sought you. I will trust you. And through the cross, through Calvary, how many offspring does Jesus have? That's the language of the Psalms. How many children does Jesus have? Billions throughout history. Who knows? When you read in Scripture, it says an innumerable number. Okay. Through His incredible work, through His faithfulness to, to His Father. What about silencing the opposition? Many people think they know about Jesus, but they've never read the Gospels. We challenge you, if you're not a Christian, go and read the Gospels. See the brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ in refuting false thinking, in refuting idolatry. When people try and trick him up, he he turns it against them. He overcomes the false idols. He destroys them. He shows their lack of power. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is one that You can come to, if you're not a Christian, you can come to, you can trust Him. He is wiser than you, He is wiser than your idols. He is the only God who came and entered into our suffering and laid down His life in in our place. And as God's children, keep seeking Him. Keep seeking how to fight the, the idols of this world, how to burn them, to destroy them, that they have no power over you. 
that you're not seduced by the movies and the story they're telling. You're not seduced by the pressures in your work environment, all of those things. You can see clearly because you've sought the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. and uh, been a little bit different this morning and uh, maybe a lot to take in, a lot of uh, maybe complex terms and uh, thoughts. Uh, do pray, Lord, that you would work in spite of my failings and weaknesses to, uh, to clearly explain, perhaps. Uh, Lord, we want to read your Bible faithfully. We want to understand it correctly. We want to have the hermeneutic, the principles of interpretation of the apostles. We want to see Christ. We want to see the applications for our lives so that we can obey you and live it out. Help us to think clearly. Help us to not be seduced by the idols of this age, by the wrong thinking of the world. We are bombarded at a, a, a level probably never before seen in history. Newspapers, magazines, billboards, cell phones, TVs, computers, internet, social media. We thank you though, Lord, that you are greater than these things. You are able to keep us. You are able to destroy those idols, to strip them bare and reveal them for what they truly are. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, anyone watching, Lord, may they come to you. May they see the wisdom of Christ and that he is the only one who can refute their wrong thinking and overthrow it. And so please do this by your spirit and glorify yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.